good to do that as a church body, to uh, commit to one another. And what's better than committing to one another is fulfilling the commitment we have made to one another. As you know, it's one thing to vow, it's another thing to live it out. So I encourage you and desire for us as a church to be that kind of place. All right, I'm going to dive in. You ready? Some are. The rest of you, may the Lord be with you. There's times, uh, oftentimes, when I'm in uh, public settings, when I say that, I mean like with people who don't normally come to church, don't really have a familiarity with church, they're greatly intrigued that I'm a pastor of a church. Every once in a while they say, it's hard to imagine you as a pastor. I'm not sure how to take that, so I just say thank you to them. And often I get asked this very question, is what kind of church is it that you work at? Now, over the years, churches have been kind of defined by denominations or affiliations and those kinds of things. But what I've discovered over the most recent years, however, decade or less, is often familiarity with associations or different things can be interpreted in different ways. And I can't control how people interpret things, but sometimes it's political. Sometimes it's an affiliation with a certain stance or whatever. So I find myself more often now saying we are a church that desires to follow Jesus. And the response is, oh. And they're like, well, how is that different than this other church? And I said, I don't know. You have to ask them. I can't speak on their behalf. But they're like, yeah, we know you want to follow Jesus, but is it like a this kind or that kind? And I'm like, that's just who we are. And today, that's what we're going to talk about, discipleship or following Jesus. But as we did last week, and I won't ask you to stand, but if you want to, you can. But this is free choice, stand or not stand. I'm going to lead us in this prayer, so let's pray this prayer together. What we know not, may you teach us. What we have not, may you give us. What we are not. May you make us. In Christ's name, amen. You can have a seat. We're in a series that we started last week with what I'm calling the first things, six foundational things for Christians, for us as a church. None of them will I speak about in completeness because that's impossible in this time, but it's a foundational thing to move forward and they deeply connect together. As we looked at last week in Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews just kind of finishes talking around. These are the things that Jesus did, and his sacrifice was a once and for all forgiveness of our sins. Therefore, this is how we're called to be as body of Christ. He says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as is the habit of doing, 
but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So our response to Jesus, what he did in his forgiveness of us as a church, we will be talking about, like last week, about faith, around discipleship, around worship, ministry, life in the spirit and community, and how those link together. Not isolated events, but how that forms us. And like I said, today is discipleship, how we follow Jesus. This statement that he makes is incredibly difficult to understand. I wish it was simpler in his explanation, but I think it's absolutely brilliant. This morning, be prepared to be confronted with some things, be prepared to be confused by some things, and hopefully curious a little bit. Let me read this to you comes from Mark chapter 8. Yes, we have done some work in Mark chapter 8, so sometimes we go back. He says this, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 37. And then he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he then rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, and then along with his disciples, and said this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul. Everybody got it? If you're like, oh yeah, I I fully understand that verse. First time I ever heard it, got it. You're not telling the truth. It's confusing. It's hard. In the day of social media that we're in, we understand maybe, at least according to social media, what it means to follow. In a way. If I choose to follow you, it means that I get to eavesdrop on the pictures that you post, the things that you say, and in a way, I open myself to being influenced by who you are. Now, wherever, because of that, wherever there's a signal, I mean, literally, anywhere there's a signal, I can kind of drop in on your life and follow you, if you will. Now, but within social media, for the most part, I kind of get to choose who I follow, what I follow, and when I follow. Sometimes uh, things are sent to me because of similar videos that I watch or engage with, and so sometimes it develops a social media presence of what are we following being influenced by, which leads me to often being intrigued when somebody says, man, this is all over social media, and I'm like, Well, the only thing that's really on my social media is like 49er videos 
and like puppy videos that I send to Lisa and Anna. Like, I don't know well, how you're getting these other things because they just keep sending me like, wow, there's so much 40. Like I could say, social media is filled with the Niners. And you're like, you have a weird social media. Yes, I do. And then there's always this time where we hit Lent where we see these proclamations from people that though they choose to follow certain things, have said, I'm now denying that and taking a break from social media. So we understand, in a sense, what it means to follow, or at least being opened up to the exposure of what people are saying to us. But Jesus seems to be making some very loud and very strong statements about what it means to follow him. Let's look at it again. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Let's break it down a little bit. Whoever wants to follow. It starts with this desire, wants, a desire to follow him. Seems like Jesus is saying, you've all been around me. You've been watching me. Your location tells me that you are near me. You're impressed by what I can do. You've been seeing things and kind of considering things, but I want to clarify some things to you because I'm more interested that you're not just around me, but that your soul is near me. In order to really follow me, to have the life that I have created you to have, it starts with wanting to follow me. Now, there's so many levels to this wanting, but to start, it's essential to understand is that God made the first move and he continues to make the first move. It is not like we get God's intention with the intensity of our desire. We already have God's intention. God made this move, and Jesus' incarnation, the very thing we just celebrated at Christmas, was the ultimate God's biggest move towards us. But Jesus is saying, do you want me? Do you want my Father? But ultimately, he's saying, do you want the life that I created? Do you want to experience things as I have made it? This is partly what Jesus is clarifying. You don't just get, like, my attention or special privileges. What you get is to experience the way life was not just hoped to be, but created to be. See, in Jesus' life, we get to see how he interacts with everybody in the margins. In everything it says, I want you, I desire you. I came after you, and I will continue to come after you. So Jesus is asking this. Do you desire the life that I put in front of you? Do you desire me? One of the early church fathers, St. Augustine, wrote a lot of prayers that became the prayers of the people. And in one of his prayers, he writes this. You called, shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance. And I gasped. And now I pant for you. I tasted you. And I hunger and thirst 
you touched me, and now I burned for your peace. There is a moment where he responds to what God is calling him out to do. Desire. The burn for his peace. It starts there, but then Jesus seems to go to an entirely different path than expected. Like we get, man, you got to want to follow me. But now listen to what Jesus says. He lays out this necessity that you need to deny and die. That probably is one of the worst like calls to actions. Suppress yourself and die. Does that sound like fun? He says, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. It seems like he is asking humanly, stop doing the thing that is easy for you to deny it and do what seems impossible to do. Take up your cross. Walk the road of death. You're like, you're right. Why would I want to do that? Let's pull back for a second to see if we can understand the cross, in today's common thing around the cross, crosses become a lot of jewelry. Crosses are temporary. They could be permanent markings or temporary markings on different parts of our body. And most people, I mean, I can't determine why people do that, but most people, like, they're claiming, like, a victory, like Christ's victory on the cross, right? Like, I'm a follower of this, and that's great. But as we learned in our biblical literacy course, to fully understand what Jesus is saying, what it means to follow him or how you follow him, you need to hear it as the original audience would have heard this. How would they have heard cross? Man, they would have heard humiliation. They would have heard agony. They would have heard the lowest of the low because a Roman citizen would not have been killed on a cross. It was if you did not have. They would have seen it as someone else's control over me. They would have seen it as like they were naked on the cross, as vulnerable and as, as overwhelmed as possible. That must have been shaking to hear their hope of what Jesus could be in their life. I can't help but think they must have been deeply confused, disoriented. I wonder if they're like, why is he saying this to us? Like, we're the ones that are walking around with him. How about all those other people? It kind of felt like this old phrase, like preaching to the choir, when you're mad at, you're yelling at the people and preaching to the people who've already heard. But Jesus is saying, I'm starting with those who kind of are around me so that you're not confused. We're the ones making an effort to be with him. Maybe these words are still hard for us today. The word desire, that, that word seems right, right? Like, man, you, you, should deny, you just should desire him. But denial feels like suppression a little bit, doesn't it? Like, it feels like we're just pushing something down. And that doesn't seem right. To die, that feels pretty hopeless. That doesn't really seem right. But Jesus, I believe, is presenting something so brilliant so opposite of the, of the normal that he can't help but pierce the things that are blocking it. I found these words from a commentator to be somewhat helpful. He wrote this. The cruciform life is a countercultural life of faithfulness and love. 
of generosity and justice, purity and promise-keeping, of nonviolence and peacemaking. The cruciform life would kind of be like a cross-informed life, like the shape of a cross. Like my devotion to God then affects my commitment to other people. The cruciform life is not a program. It is not eight steps. It is not something that we just randomly go through. It is a life shaped by who Christ is. But the question remains, doesn't it, why? Why would anyone choose or desire to do what he's asking? To deny and die. That sounds exhausting. We continue to read in Mark, he says this, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. So my thought goes to this. So you die so you can follow. Come on. How is that even possible? Aren't those in conflict? Like when you're dead, you're dead. What does this even mean? Like, I need to die so that I can live. Like what? I think Jesus must have meant something like this. To follow him, something in us must die. To follow him, something in us must follow. To follow him, something in us must die. And to follow, something in us must follow. I was in a conversation with a, a dear friend, a friend who's been a mentor, a spiritual advisor, a counselor, a therapist, if you will. And over the series of this conversation, my questions, though you may think you're a pastor, you should know all of these things, but I'm also human, so I often wonder, how can my inner world be congruent with my outer world, was my question. I mean, how do I grow in character and faithfulness when the things of my life are becoming more difficult? And as I dig down, I thought, really what I want to know is, how do I have the inner peace that my outer peace was showing? Like, I feel the weight and expectations of what I do for a living, and even being a follower of Jesus, so I often would hear in my head, you need to act like a Christian. You need to act like a follower of Jesus. Man, that's been ingrained in me since I was a little kid. I got that down. Like, I know how to act like a Christian. I know how to impress people. I know how to be either pious or cool and relational to the point where they're like, man, you, you're way too cool to be a pastor. Okay, no one's ever said that to me. But how, at the end of the day, does my inner heart feel the peace that I'm portraying? The answers back to me included things like healing from your past and Maybe having a prayer of examine in your life and your thoughts. And paying attention to what's currently going on inside of you. Including dying to the thing that's killing you. Because many times we've become really good friends with the lifelong lies of the enemy. And those lies are not your friends. 
your inner critic, your inner voice will always try to protect you. It just gives you awful advice. It looks out for you, but it destroys you. I also learned I needed to release the things that are no longer the same. My problem is this, is that I got stuck. Somehow I had learned along the way that Jesus wanted me to deny myself by not trusting my emotions or my wants or my desires. That's what was told me. Deny those, deny those, deny those. It's what in my head meant pushed down. So my real question was, how do I pay attention to myself and deny myself at the same time? What's okay to think about and not think about? This phrase became incredibly helpful to me. The denial of self is the denial of a false self, so the true self can emerge. When I'm called to deny myself, as Jesus put it, I'm called to deny a false self. Paul calls this the flesh. Jesus calls it the self for the soul or true life. And when we need to deny the false so that the true can start to emerge. Jesus calls this the soul, true life. So something in me and in you must be denied to die, and something in us must be embraced and bolstered. Something in you and in me needs to be denied to die, and something within us needs to be to embrace and bolster. Thomas Merton wrote it this way. Every one of us is shadowed by a false self. We're not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones we cherish about ourselves. Our reality, our true self, is hidden in what appears to us to be nothingness. We can rise above this unreality and recover our hidden reality. God himself begins to live in me, not only as my creator, but as my other and true self. God starts to live in me. That is mind-blowing if you really think about it. We are not left to our own whims. We're not left to our own achievements. We are not left to trying to prove ourselves that, God, we're worthy of your attention. He's like, not only do I want a better life for you, I want to be in you and from the inside out have this be. Paul explains it like this to the letter in his Galatians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now I know these words, false self and true self. You're like, what is this, some kind of psycho babble or like a TED talk? Like, oh, what is, what is this? What's real? What's not real? And I know these things because whenever I talk about true self and false self, people are like, that doesn't sound right. But in these verses, Jesus says this. Whoever wants to save their life, 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 life. Original Greek word is suke, where we get psychology, where we get our personality, our identity. 
who we are as a person, how we relate. Your will. Jesus is saying your soul, your inner self, if you want to save your suke. John Ortberg defines it as this. Your soul is what integrates your will, which would be your intentions and your mind, your thoughts and feelings, your values and conscience and your body, which is your face, your body language and actions, into a single life. My friends, I think if you've heard nothing else, that is the desire of Jesus. He looks at you and says, I want you to have a single life. I want you to have a congruent life that the thing I have done inside of you is the very thing that is showing up on the outside of you. And the very thing that is on the outside of you is coming from a changed inside of you. And the only way we do this is we die to a false self. Sometimes it's enough is enough. I will no longer believe that lie being said to me. I will no longer believe the things that are not bringing me life. He is not saying, Jesus is not saying, forget your dreams or suppress your emotions or pack away your thoughts. Be stronger than your whims. That is not the teachings of Jesus. And if you have believed in a gospel that has told you to be stronger than your temptations, that is not, that is not the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus say, let me in to be the strength. Let me in to show you life. What he is saying, in order to find your true self, the one I put in you, the one he put in Bo, in order to find your real life, the one that looks like my life, you need to basically unclutter the path. The writer of Hebrews, as we looked at last week, said, Eliminate the sin that so easily trips you up. For so long, my friends, I thought growing up in the church and being told by spiritual leaders that denying myself was to suppress something, to pretend it didn't exist, which meant that if I felt tempted, I needed to hide a protection around me to live out that sin. And I thought as long as nobody saw it, I was doing it. What I've come to know and believe what denying it is, Jesus says, don't push it down. What if you did the opposite? What if you brought it up for all to see? What if your life was vulnerable and transparent? And you're like, that sounds horrifying. And yet Jesus says, confess and lay your burdens before one another. And maybe it's not for all to see, but what if you put a big old light on the things that are killing you and see them for what they really are. While the enemy says, push it into the darkness, Jesus says, pull it to the light. And there's a beautiful, holy endeavor that a community of believers can have with one another where we honor and applaud and encourage bringing things to the light and saying there's nothing there for me. A life of alignment and not willpower is one that Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is saying the things that you've learned to grasp, to hang on to, the societal thoughts, the convictions you have, how things used to be, 
Sometimes we just need to mourn the loss of those and let it go to step forward. Because what starts to happen, the more we grab and hang on to, the temptation in these moments is to tell stories and create stories in our head that bring sense to the things that we're feeling. Instead, I think it needs to tap back into what we talked about last week about faith and trust. Can God be trusted to do the very thing he said? Let's take some more modern language as we kind of zero in and see if this is helpful. David Brooks, who is an author and writer for the New York Times, in a podcast said this, you have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside yourself to gain the strength within yourself. You have to conquer your desires to get what you crave. Success leads to the greatest failure, which is pride. Failure leads to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. That inverse logic is the moral logic. There is no other. A little bit older, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote this, which he explains kind of the same thing Jesus is trying to say to us. Your real self, your new self, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end and submit with every fiber on your being and you will find eternal life. Still, there's so many of us, including myself, who are like, but how do I just make sure I feel good along the way? What Jesus is telling people is a desire to follow him and denying and dying is not for them to feel more pain. It is not for people to see, like, how serious are you really? Do you really deserve this? Instead, he's saying the very thing you've always wanted the very thing in the middle of the night when you lie in bed and your heart is hurting and you're anxious and you lack peace and you're wondering where life has gone and you're wondering what people are going to think of you and you're wondering will it ever be like it was. To that life, God is saying, you need to die and let go so that my life that I have for you will be better than you can even ever imagine. Do you trust me? Jesus is saying, following me is a life that reflects the commitment I made to you. One more for David Brooks. A commitment is falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. That is so much of our relationship with God. How do we create a rhythm of following him well? I am not sure what comes to your mind when Jesus says you need to die and 
deny yourself of some of those things. I know for my life it was one thing. If you were talking to me as a teenage boy, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what I need to die to. Some of you are smiling at me. Yes, that, that thing. And there's times in my life where things jump out. And now it's different than that, and it, but it's still there. And, and I, I know for everybody in this room, if, what is God asking you to deny or let go of? What are the things that aren't helping you? What are the things that actually are killing you? Today, instead of just pressing them down or leaving or the, the Spirit telling you, you know, or the, the enemy actually telling you, just keep that your own little secret. What if instead you started by letting it go with God? God, I don't want this in my heart anymore. I don't want this temptation to overcome me. I do not want to believe this lie anymore. Because following Jesus together looks like this. Knowing Jesus by learning to follow him, taking in our life his and his practices and his teachings, meditating on them by building a personal, intimate relationship with him, and obeying Jesus by bringing your life into conformity with all that he taught. This is keeping your moral lives in line with Jesus' teachings and by practicing justice and charity and faithfulness. And its simplest form of some of the most confusing verses and words that Jesus ever said is this. We are called to be with Jesus, to being like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. By the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just possible. It is the reality of the one who lets God in. And gives God control. Let's pray.